going to be continuing our teaching series, Born Again Behavior. Last Sunday, we learned that there were men in the church that James wrote to. They were aspiring to become teachers of God's word, but in fact, for many of the wrong reasons, not all of them, but many. Many were motivated by a desire for the kind of notoriety and, and fame and, and even fortune that was associated with the rabbis of the first century who would go around preaching the word. And, and these men in this church, they wanted to become like those rabbis of the synagogues who basically gained all of their notoriety, wealth, and prominence and everything from teaching the Torah, the Old Testament. Uh, these men wanted to become great ones, and that's how rabbi translates in Hebrew. It means great ones. So these Christian men wanted to become great ones like their Jewish contemporaries, the rabbis. And we made a lot of parallels with what was happening in the first century with today, where we see this today in the church with these kind of megachurch rock star pastors and such. And so we made many, many parallels. Now, not only were these men, their, their motives, not only were their motives off, but so was their behavior. Uh, and in other words, they were motivated by the wrong reason for wanting to become teachers in the church, but their behavior didn't align with that kind of calling or profession either. Um, after studying chapters 1 and 2 here in James, we've actually, many times, at least I have, I've been wondering if these brothers whom James wrote to were actually Christians at all. Um, in fact, because of the intensity of the corrections and the poor behavior of, of many in this church uh, for centuries and centuries and centuries, people have been wondering if this was written to Christians at all. Uh, in fact, a guy the other day was going off and saying that, no, it was just written to Jews, just Jews, not believing Jews, just Jews. And I take much issue with that interpretation, especially after reading the first lines in chapter 1, where he obviously calls these people brothers and he talks about their faith. Well, Jews and Christians do not share the same faith. So I believe indeed this letter was written to Christians, but there were many in the church that simply weren't behaving that way, and some of them wanted to teach. We do know, however, that every Christian stumbles, and that's something that James told us in verse 2a. But there are some sins that will disqualify a Christian from holding the position of teacher in the church. And some of those sins were present in, in this church that James wrote to, within these men that James addressed here in this letter. Sins such as unrighteous anger. And we see that in chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Uh, the man who's going to who's aspiring to be a teacher in the church, aspiring to maybe be an elder because that's generally who teaches the word in the churches. He, he can't be a, uh, an angry person, one who's hot-tempered. Uh, you can read about that in First Tim chapter 3 where the qualifications for such a person are laid out. Uh, these, these men were also, that wanted to be teachers, they were kind of disqualified, disqualified in the sense that they were combative. Chapter 4, verse 1 of James. Can't be a combative person, someone who's always trying to settle things with your dukes, trying to box it out. And then another disqualifier was the evil speech that they used. You can't be speaking evil speech toward one another. You can't be mistreating one another and verbally assaulting and attack, attacking one another. And we see that in verse 11 of chapter 4. 
So these guys were motivated by the wrong reasons to become teachers in the church, but they also didn't have the kind of behavior that one would have to possess. If a teacher, and, and think of the logic here, if a teacher of God's word regularly exhibits these sins in particular, not all the other ones that were there, but just the ones that I'd mentioned, what will his pupils begin to exhibit the same sins? Unrighteous anger, combativeness, evil speech. We talked about it from Hosea last week where the people become like the priest. And so this is why God has placed um, such high requirements on those who teach in the church because of that power of influence they have. And the people they teach will become like them minimally in their theology and so often as in their behavior as well. A teacher of God's word must exhibit maturity in speech and maturity in conduct. Maturity is different than perfection. But they must be mature in those areas, verse 2b, which is the opposite of what many of these men were exhibiting. And this is why James pumped the brakes and warned them in verse 1. God holds those who teach to a higher standard than those who do not teach. Now, some Christians will say, well, then I guess I'm not held to that standard because I don't teach. Well, yeah, you are still held to a higher standard, but teachers are held to an even higher standard. And God will absolutely judge those who teach with stricter judgment because of the authority they bear and because of the influence they wield. In the next section, James warns his audience and all Christians about the tongue. It's really interesting when you think about the context of this whole passage about taming the tongue. It's all set within the context of teachers. Now, some Christians would say, okay, I guess it doesn't apply. No, it does. The admonitions and corrections here and, and warnings and exhortations are for all Christians, especially those who teach. He warns us about the tongue in the next section. He's going to show us three things from the text. They are, number one, the destructive power of the tongue. We see that in verses 5b through 6a. He's going to show us the staining power of the tongue in verse 6b. And then he's going to show us the uncontrollable power of the tongue, just how the tongue cannot be controlled by us in verses 7 through 12. Please take your Bibles and turn right over to James, chapter 3. Our whole section will be verses 5b through 12. I have entitled this message, very simply, The Power of the Tongue. Let's pray before we get to work. Father, we thank you for the opportunities we've had to engage you and worship you so far through song and through prayer and through reading and through announcements and through fellowship before this service and now we thank you for this opportunity to worship you through the proclamation and teaching of your word father may we be attentive may we listen intently closely and carefully father may your holy spirit open our eyes and our minds and our ears and our hearts to receive the word i know father that this will be a tough lesson for all of us i know that it was for me and so, but I pray, Father, that we wouldn't be defensive or deflective. That you would teach us and train us from your word about the power of the tongue. And that you would lead us to repentance through your kindness. 
and help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to only speak that which is good and edifying, that which brings you glory, that which we have been recreated through the power of the Holy Spirit to say. You have created us in such a way, to speak in such a way, and help us to learn these things today and to apply them and to live them out. It does us no good to learn the word and just hear it. We must obey it and live it out. So help us do that. And may you receive every ounce of glory through this sermon and through all that we do here. We pray these things in the mighty matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we can go ahead and pick up where we left off last week, and that would be at verses 5b and 6a. I'll read the text, and, and we'll get moving. James continues by saying, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. In the previous section, James described how a horse is guided by a small bit and a large ship is guided by a small rudder to what? Illustrate how the tongue, which is also very small, has the ability to make great, great boasts and, and direct people and cause people to move in certain directions. And then here he uses a spark in a wildfire to illustrate the destructive power of the tongue. How many of you have been to Yosemite? It's a very nice place to visit. Every time I go there, I, I feel bad because I didn't go there three more times in, in the previous months. Every time I go there, I'm just blown away by it, and I love it so much. And I went last year with a couple of brothers here, Cameron and, and Dennis. And as we drove around the park, we began to marvel at the many mountainsides that had been literally burned down. I mean, from the road, uh, you could see the fire damage for, for as far as your eye could see. For miles in every direction, there was just devastating, the, the devastating effects of a major wildfire. Just beyond what you could actually see. And, and one of the places where I like to go shooting, because I like to shoot guns and stuff like that. Maybe you're not into guns, that's fine. We're still brothers and sisters, so we're in Christ. But... Maybe you like to shoot, maybe you don't, uh, but I do like to shoot guns. It's a hobby of mine. It's an expensive hobby. I don't get to do it as much, but we go up to Highway 49 up above Coulterville, and that's all along Highway 49. It's all BLM land. It's all government land up there, and there's some turnouts along the highway where you can, you know, you've got some distance. The place we go has about 300 yards. I like to shoot my ARs up there and stuff, and so, but that whole area is burnt down, literally as far as the eye can see. That area, every time I go there, it's just, it's just crisp and it's dry and there's just barely any kind of greenery at all in that entire area along 49, all the way down to Lake McClure, where Bagby is, if you've ever been there. And the investigators who investigated a fire that was there, it was a very large fire in that area, um, they say that it was caused by a firearm near a road called Detweiler. And um, that's why the fire is called the Detweiler Fire. And I find that to be very interesting because I've been shooting on and off my entire life, and I'm, I'm not exactly sure how you can start a fire with a fire. Now, some of you might be thinking, but sparks fly out. Well, sometimes they fly out of the muzzle. 
Uh, not always. Uh, so there's the possibility of it there, but it's very rare. And I'm thinking what happened was somebody was probably firing through dry grass. Um, because I don't, I, don't, I don't know, maybe they were lying in the prone position or something like that. It, the brass that's coming out of the ejector or out of the cylinder is not going to be hot enough to cause a fire. But in any case, I, I don't know, maybe somebody was shooting you know, down where the muzzle was in the dry grass and they were shooting. And, and of course, you know, I, I know this is kind of insulting, but only an idiot would do that. But as a gun guy and as a, as a shooter my whole life, there's just no shortage of idiots with guns out there. Or is it? I love the Second Amendment, but, you know, it, not everyone should have a gun. And this fire was allegedly started by someone with a gun. I don't know. It's entirely possible because some people just aren't smart. Do you remember the ranch fire of 18? How many of you remember the ranch fire? Reading about what's called the ranch fire. That fire single-handedly burned 410,000 acres. It is California's Largest recorded wildfire. Do you know how it was started? It was started by a small spark from a hammer blow to a metal stake. That's what caused 410,000 acres to be vanquished. And how about the campfire? That was in 18 as well. How many of you have heard of the campfire? That's probably one of the more notable ones. It was actually relatively small in comparison to the ranch fire. It was only about a third the size. And, and we all know the story. It was started when a PG&E power transformer on a pole failed and sent sparks flying into dry grass. Now, that fire may have been relatively small compared to other wildfires that we've had in the state, but it destroyed 19,000 structures. 19,000 structures. And 85 people lost their lives in that fire. It's unbelievable what happened. And what I'm saying is that nobody really understands wildfires better than Californians. Nobody understands the potential of a spark leading to a wildfire better than us, with the exception of maybe the Australians, who have been going through quite a bit of that lately. We, we get this. We understand that. We understand that, that all it takes is just a, a small spark, and the next thing you know, thousands upon thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands of acres are gone, and, and then there's homes that are gone and lives that are lost and, and just countless wildfire. I think in the Australian fire, they estimated about a billion wildlife, billion animals have been killed in that fire. That's just unbelievable. You know, the tongue is small like a spark. And it also, like a spark, it also contains massive destructive power and ability. Wars have been fought because of the tongue. Entire wars. You know, it begins with a war of words, and then it turns into a physical conflict. This has happened over and over and over. Have you ever heard of the Pig War of 1859? That's not a popular one. It started because of an argument over a slaughtered swine. On San Juan Island in northwest Washington State, American settlers disputed with British employees of the Hudson's Bay Company over a dead black boar. Apparently the boar was rooting around in some American settler's potato patch, and what'd he do? He racked his musket and let it have it. He had some pork chops, blasted it. 
Well, that black boar was owned by a Brit, by a British employee of that company. And an argument ensued between both men, and it led to what is remembered in history as the Pig War. The U.S. Army was eventually brought in to deal with the situation. And how did the Brits respond to, the, to American muscle showing up? Well, they flexed the muscle by sending the entire royal fleet to the island. Both sides argued back and forth. Tensions ran high for several weeks until an agreement was reached. And that agreement was that both Brits and Americans would inhabit that island and, and exer exercise sovereignty and control over it. There was only one casualty during the Pig War of 1859, the British Black Boar, and poor Piggy. Tongues, in this situation, tongues created a war of words between two nations, which literally led to another full-scale conflict, like the one that happened 76 years earlier, the Revolutionary War which took the lives of about 70,000 people total. And that, I guess that's small in scale to compare to World War I and II, but still a lot of American and British lives. Why is the tongue so potentially destructive? And, 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 and notice in the text that James doesn't even call it potentially destructive. It's just destructive. Why is it so destructive? James tells us it's because the tongue is a world of what? unrighteousness. What does he mean here? What does this mean? Well, the Greek word for world is cosmos. It looks like cosmos, but it's with a K, and it's pronounced cosmos. And here it refers to the world system, not the planet. The world system, the world system which is secular and evil. You know, the world system which denies the truth and denies God and denies creation and promotes evolution and denies, uh, you know, true biological genders and, 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 you know, pushes sexual immorality and every other form of sin. That's the world system. The worldly way of thinking and processing information and living your life. The world system basically encompasses all that is wicked in this world. All that is wicked in this world. The world system is run by Satan. It's run by his demons. For he is the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Right? Ephesians 2.2. 2. What James is telling us is that the tongue is tapped into the world system in all of its unrighteousness. When the, when the tongue speaks evil, it reveals its connection to the world, which is evil. The more evil a person speaks, the greater the connection. James is also telling us that the tongue is, in and of itself, its own world. Of unrighteousness. In other words, the tongue contains within itself an entire fallen planet's worth of unrighteousness. Wow. Doesn't have to tap into the world system to function and speak evil. It can and will do this all on its own. Now, I would be one 
that would support the argument of how influences can lead us to say certain things and all of that. But what James is telling us is that the tongue has the propensity and ability to speak evil without even those external influences. Why? Well, it's tied to our heart. And if our heart is evil and unregenerated, right, it's from the heart a man speaks is what Jesus taught. We'll talk about that later. It doesn't have to be influenced by negative evil influences to speak evil. The tongue needs no outside influence and no external power source to do its dirty work. It is a self-contained, self-powered cosmos of unrighteousness. It contains within itself enough destructive power to level worlds, plural. This is how James opens this section with his exposition of the tongue. Now we can move to verse 6b. He says, The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. These are strong words. Here James describes the the staining power of the tongue. The tongue is one member of our body, a small one at that, and yet it has the power to stain the entire person like smoke from a fire can stain clothing and other items that were literally untouched by the flames. Any of you guys like to do outdoor fire pit at your house? Yeah, I know I've had a couple at Brandon's. I think Dave has sent me pictures of his. I do one once in a while, and I just love that, especially when it's really cold outside. But one of the things that I don't like about it is that when I come in, I smell like I just returned from camping, right? That, that smoke, when it, when it gets in your face and on you, it kind of permeates your clothing. It permeates your hair. It, it kind of stains you with that smoky smell. And I do like that smell a lot for about five minutes. And then after that, I get annoyed, right? Because it smells really cool at first. And you're like, this is great. I like this. I feel like an outdoorsman, even though I sit at a desk all day. I'm a real hunter, you know? And then it's like, after a while, you're like, that stinks. I need to wash that off. And it's very, very hard to get off. It's not as potent as the skunk blast, but it's pretty, pretty powerful stuff. It's pretty stinchy. And the staining power of the tongue is like that. It is like leaven. What does a little leaven do? It leavens the whole lump of dough, right? Galatians 5, 9. Think about how this works in real time for a moment, this point that James is making. When we hear a person, and maybe we don't know this person, but when we hear someone we don't know speak evil, what do we say to ourselves? Wow, listen to that person speak evil. No, no, no. No, that's not typically what we say. We say, wow, that's an evil person, don't we? We assign or ascribe what they say to the whole of that person. Sometimes we'll say things like, wow, that's some pretty raunchy speech, but it's rare. We usually automatically 
ascribe that to the totality of that person. When we hear someone that we don't really know very well, when we hear somebody that we do know well, we get depressed and upset and we hopefully lovingly correct them. But when we hear somebody we don't know, we say, man, that guy's just evil. Man, that gal's just evil. Did you hear what they were saying? Isn't this true? This is how this plays out. When the tongue speaks evil, the entire person is seen as evil, not just their words. An evil tongue casts an evil shadow over the entire person, not just over their mouth. The tongue brings the whole man or the whole woman into reproach, right? This is the staining power of the tongue. One who uses their tongue to speak evil and profanity in these things, they end up fully stained. We see that full person as evil, not just what they're saying, not just their words. We can also think of it like this. Evil words can have a lasting impact on us, right? Especially when they're spoken directly to us, when somebody insults us or attacks us verbally or says malicious things about us or curses at us or these things, that, that, has a, that can have a really profound impact on us. I bet some of you in this audience this morning can remember all the way back to when you were a child when somebody said something to you. I literally can. I won't tell you what they said because then I would be disqualified from ministry. Well, I'd be in trouble at least with the elders. But you, you, these things get printed on your memory, don't they? When somebody attacks us verbally or says things about us or about our loved ones, we remember that. And yet when somebody praises us in a good godly way, when somebody um, encourages us in a good godly way or shows us verbal kindness, that's like gone in 10 minutes. And then we're over there begging for more. Could you say that again? But we remember the hurtful things that people say. We do. And, and what happens is, is that we not only remember what they say, but what they said to us stains our image of them, doesn't it? You not only remember what they say, but you don't have a very good view of the person who said it. So, so somebody says something to us, we remember that, and it can, in a sense, permanently stain our image of that person. Now, I'm not suggesting at all that we hold grudges or that we try to maintain stained views of people. People are experts at this, by the way. I've known a few. I'm not suggesting we do that at all. We are to forgive people. We are to seek to reconcile with those who have hurt us. I'm simply showing you the staining power of the tongue. It can and will stain the image of those who speak evil. Maybe some of you right now can think of people who've spoken evil to you, and you have a stained image of that person. You might say to yourself, I really don't like that guy because of what he said to me. I really don't like that gal because of what she said to me. That's that staining power of the illicit use of the tongue. The tongue not only has this staining power, but it can set on fire a person's entire existence. <laughs> the phrase course of life is trochos genesis in Greek, and it refers to one's entire course of life. It's like the wheel of life. 
What James is basically saying here is that the tongue has the power to destroy a person's entire life and future just by what they say or what somebody else says to them has that kind of destructive power. Now, this actually happened, by way of example, this actually happened quite a bit during World War II. You familiar with the phrase, loose lips sink ships? Some of us that are above 50 probably still use that old puppy. You young ones are like, huh? Little millennials, you don't know anything. (laughs) You're familiar with this phrase. You know where it comes from. Well, it was actually a popular slogan during World War II. It was developed during World War II. It was literally printed on many of the war posters and all other sorts of media. It was spread everywhere. And what it did was it reminded folks to be careful in their conversations because the enemy could be listening in and then taking that information and sending it to its commanders. Well, if you know German ingenuity, the Germans were always listening in, even on regular phone conversations between people during that era, during that time. And guess what? People weren't very careful. Even though this stuff was placard and postered all over the place, people weren't very careful with what they said. And they were always, the Germans were able to always gain intelligence through normal conversation. And they were able to send that information to their commanders. And what happened? It resulted in the sinking of many U.S. and ally ships by German U-boats, submarines. Loose lips sink ships. Men and women had lost their lives, their futures destroyed because loose lips sink ships. Because of the tongue. Because of the tongue. I like what R. Kent Hughes wrote. This is a great quote from him. He says, about nine-tenths of the flames we experience in our lives come from the tongue. Nine-tenths. I want you to notice the little phrase at the end of 6b, and set on fire by hell. This is graphic. This this kind of speech here would be highly um, offensive to many quote-unquote Christians today. They don't like this, this hell thing. Having grabbed his his readers' imaginations with his graphic language, James adds this final touch. The participle here, it has the idea of the tongue being constantly set on fire by the flames of hell. It's, It's perpetually burning, so to speak. James used the same word for hell that Jesus often used. It's Gehenna, and that particular word is derived from this perpetually burning garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. Did you know that? Uh, People that lived in Jerusalem in the first century, they'd take all their trash outside the city by the Kidron Valley and they would burn all the trash down there. And that place was called Gehenna. And it is the place where the fires never go out and the worm never dies, right? These are metaphors for hell. Jesus used, Jesus would point to that place and say, that's what hell is like. Well, James does that here, right? He uses the same word, Gehenna. 
Can anyone miss his point here? The tongue, what James is telling us is that the tongue has a direct pipeline to hell. This pipeline is reciprocal, fueled by hell. The tongue burns our lives with its filthy fires. But it is also, as as Calvin wrote, an instrument for catching, encouraging, and increasing the fires of hell. So, so far, James has shown us the destructive power of the tongue and the staining power of the tongue. We need to move to verses 7 and 8. James continues by saying, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. In verse 8 he says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Here James describes the, the taming of various kinds of animals to illustrate the uncontrollable power of the tongue. And I think he was probably pointing to or referring to what was called Circus Maximus. Circus Maximus was the massive complex in Rome where the Romans held chariot races and gladiator fights, executions, military processions, animal exhibitions, and hunting demonstrations. It was like a big kind of civic center or stadium where they held all these events. And one of the things they would do is go out and Animal tamers would go out and show their skills with lions and these sorts of things. But they also did a whole lot of other things there. And Circus Maximus was the largest circus in the ancient world. It could seat 250,000 people. That's nearly five times the capacity of the Colosseum. This thing was absolutely massive, a massive place with massive, a massive circus that they ran with all of these different sorts of exhibitions and events. And of course, Circus Maximus, this ancient circus, it paved the way for modern circuses such as Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey and Circus Vargas. All of them sort of come out of the ancient circuses. And I think the first circuses came to America in the middle to late 1700s. One of the most entertaining features of a modern circus is what? It's animal exhibitions, right? Where men and women make dangerous beasts like lions, tigers, and bears. Yeah. And elephants perform tricks. It's pretty extraordinary. How many of you have ever actually been to a circus? It's pretty extraordinary what they do with these animals. And that's what James is capturing here, the idea of being able to tame beasts. And he lists, he himself lists several kinds of animals that men have tamed. Now he's talking about 2,000 years ago. And what does he list? He lists some interesting animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures. Kind of reminds me of the exotic parrots people keep as pets or the crocodile that a guy has. You know, and he does these demonstrations where he puts his head in its mouth. I've always thought that was really dumb. And sometimes the crocodile's like, not today, you know, and then the guy's screaming. Or maybe, how many of you have been to SeaWorld and you see sea creatures that have been tamed? You see dolphins doing backflips for a little sardine, right? A little fish. What James is saying, it conjures that kind of imagery here, right? For thousands and thousands of years, mankind has tamed every kind of 
beast. But there is a beast that no human being is able to tame. It is much smaller than lions, tigers, and bears, and elephants. It's even smaller than most birds, most reptiles, most sea creatures. But make no mistake, it is more fierce than a wolverine and more deadly than a diamondback. It is the two-ounce beast that is set behind our teeth, the tongue. James tells us that the tongue cannot be tamed by us, for it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The Greek word for restless is kind of a tough one to pronounce. Um, it's akatostatos, and it pictures a wild animal caged up or in sort of some kind of restraint, maybe with a collar and a leash, and it, it pictures this animal trying to break free from its restraints. That's what the word restless in Greek pictures. That's the word picture. And a, a lion or a tiger trying to get out of its cage or get away from its handler. That's what's pictured here. And this, in many ways, is precisely what the tongue does at times, right? When we're trying to control it, what does it do? It fights to get free of its restraints, right? It literally beats against our teeth, doesn't it? We're like, I'm not going to do it. And see how I can still talk with my teeth down? Even the tongue is functioning 100, almost 100% with my mouth shut. My teeth clenched. But it, it will beat against our teeth, right? There are times. That's what's pictured here. That is what's pictured here. And what happens so often is that the tongue does break its restraints, right? And then what does it do? It beats against our teeth and it breaks free. And then it, what, it spews what he calls deadly poison, right? You almost get the idea of a, of a spitting cobra here, right? I'll tell you, the greatest men, the greatest, most godly men in history worked and worked and worked to tame their tongues, but to no avail. Men like Moses, men like Job, men like Isaiah. We talked about them a little bit last week. These were some of the greatest men to have ever walked the face of the earth. And yet Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips, Isaiah 6. This is, this is not something that, that us human beings have the ability and strength and power to do. We, we, we cannot tame the tongue. We cannot tame our own tongues. Why? Because the tongue has uncontrollable power. It simply cannot be tamed by human beings. But notice the description James uses. He says, by human beings. He doesn't say by God. He doesn't say by a spirit. The tongue, however, can be tamed by God, who is spirit. Through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, a saint, a saint, a saint can begin to tame his or her tongue. Not perfectly, but progressively. They will get progressively better at this. You know, this is really literally one of the first things that a born-again believer experiences, right? A dramatic change in thinking and speech. 
is it not? This was the first, like for me personally, when I got saved about 20 years ago, this was the first measurable thing. I noticed that my thinking changed uh, uh, just overnight, it seemed, and that my speech began to change. I, I lost interest in, in using my tongue in a way that I'd used it before. I mean, I was like a sailor before. You know, we get so frustrated today with the way people speak. And, and it just goes to show that people cannot tame or control their tongues. But one of the first things that I noticed when I first was saved was all of a sudden it was like, man, my, my speech changed and my tongue begin, began to change dramatically. And, and, and when you, you know, when this happens with you, this shows that the Holy Spirit is present and working in your life as a believer when that tongue becomes restrained. Because you know, as well as I do, it's not something that you can do. It's something that you strive to do and try to do and most of the time in our own power. But it is something that, that the Holy Spirit can work through us. Again, perfectly, no. No, sometimes we're faster than the Holy Spirit, especially when you stub something. Holy Spirit's like, I almost had it. But we don't want to think here that, okay, great, we don't, we don't want to uh, run roughshod with this. Well, since we can't control our tongues, there's no sense in even trying. We don't want to be fatalists. No, 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 no. This whole text was written to Christians who were not using their tongues right, and it's all one big, heavy correction. He's talking about hell and stuff. This is serious. This is something that we do have to work on. But it is something that only the Holy Spirit in us can work in us and through us. He can help us with this. And when your speech begins to change, it shows the presence of the Holy Spirit and His power and work in your mouth and in your head and in your heart and in your life. Now, the person, though, and there's a lot of these people out there today, there are a lot of people out there who profess faith in Christ, and yet their speech is absolutely no different. They still say all of the things that an unbeliever would say. What do I have to say of that person? He's a liar. She's a liar. Or they're insanely deceived and don't realize what they've been called to. But you can't profess faith in Christ, as James said in the previous chapter, and then not have works, right? Because true saving faith comes with works. Works will come out of that. And one of those works is what? Tongue work. Working on that speech watching what you say, right? So the person who just, oh, yeah, I love Jesus. Blah, you know, it's like, no, you, you need Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus for a minute because I don't know which Jesus you're talking about. Now let's move to verses 9 and 10. Listen to what James says next. He says, with it, he's uh, speaking of, his, of the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Boy, this guy just knows how we are, doesn't he? I wonder if he was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote this. Uh, yeah. Verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And then he says this, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Here James further illustrates the uncontrollable power of the tongue through yet another example. Blessing and cursing. Evidently, James had observed a contradictory phenomenon in this church. Jewish Christians, because that's who he wrote to. This was like a group of 
Jews who had been saved. They were Jewish Christians, Messianic Christians. Jewish Christians were perpetuating the, the beautiful old Hebrew custom of saying, blessed be he, after every utterance of God's name, so that their worship times were continually punctuated by courses of praise or choruses of praise. Yet, this is what they would say during their worship service, yet these same people with the blessings still on their lips would sometimes after leaving worship, they would actually curse someone who had angered them. That's what they were doing. They'd be They'd, like us, we would be at God worshiping and singing his praises and, and blessing him and praising him. And then we leave church and we curse a guy in a car who very much proves that he does not know how to drive. Or somebody else, some brother or sister that we were interacting with after the service and saying, I cannot believe what she said. What a, you know, ding dong, whatever. That's what they were doing. They would go to church and, oh, praise God, right? They would sing the songs and they would repeat these old Hebrew things and, and then they would curse men. This is a bad situation here. The law, as James well knew from the teaching of Jesus, is fulfilled by loving God with all one's heart and loving one's neighbor as oneself, right? Mark 12, 30 through 31 but to affirm devotion for God and then hate a fellow man made in God's image scandalizes one's profession of loving God. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Oof. Blessing God and cursing people clearly demonstrates the uncontrollable power of the tongue, right? It does. It shows how it's in control in a sense when it blesses God and then out of control when it curses people. Oh, it's a, it's a terrible, terrible situation that we're in and this temptation to do this all the time is just, it's so dreadful and so frustrating and quite frankly, this kind of behavior of blessing God and cursing men, it's just absolutely offensive to God. It's offensive to Him. It's sinful. Why? Well, first, it's hypocritical. It's very hypocritical of us to be blessing and praising God and then to curse men. That's hypocritical. And God is not a fan of hypocrisy. If you, if you know anything about Jesus' ministry, you know who He went after. The Pharisees. Why? Because they were Pharisees? No, because they were hypocrites. They had these religious standards that they wanted everyone else to live up to, but they never did. They were what, filled with righteousness? No, old men's dead bones. They were hypocrites, and, and God despises hypocritical behavior. And when we bless God and curse men, we're being hypocrites. Second, God has made people in His likeness. This is the exact wording that James uses. He doesn't just say that God created man. He says God created man in his likeness. When we curse men, we are essentially cursing the God who created men in his likeness. When we curse men, who are we then cursing? The one who created them, God himself. That's devastating. That's not something that I, I really pondered or thought about prior to this message 
and one of the reasons why I felt like I could not go on because there have been times where I have been so frustrated with people that I have said things about them that I ought not say and I have offended the one who made them in his likeness. And then, of course, with that understanding now, I'd say, but God, there's no way you made them in your likeness because they wouldn't do that if they were like you. That's not a rational. That's not a good rationale. That's just explaining things away. When we curse men, we are, in a sense, cursing God. Wow. And when we curse other believers, we are committing an even greater sin because we are essentially cursing the God who is remaking them into a greater likeness of himself. Nobody on earth is more like God than the believer. They're being recreated to be like him, to be like Christ. That's the whole purpose of our salvation, to be conformed to the image of Christ, Ephesians 1. This, this cursing men... I know it seems right at times because of what men do, but it's a sin. It's a grievous sin, an attack on the sovereign maker who made them. Are, are we to think that God doesn't know and understand with his omniscience, all knowledge, that he doesn't know how they are and the likeness of Satan they represent at times? And I mean, God knows them. He created them. He understands them. He may be planning to redeem some of them, and some may be reprobate that he's not going to, but in any case, to curse his creation is to curse the creator. That's the warning that James is making here. And James doesn't say it doesn't apply to those who are really, really difficult. I wish there was a clause in there, some, some cliff notes at the bottom that said, oh, hey, the guy that's a real jabroni, don't worry about him. Go ahead and keep cursing him because he deserves it. There's no clause. It's just black and white. There's no gray. And think about the double impact of cursing another believer. It's even worse. And this is something that we do sometimes when the people of God upset us, isn't it? We do this. Guilty. Guilty. It's terrifying. But cursing image bearers, cursing people who are made in the likeness, and especially those believers who are made even in a greater likeness to God, that, that's not the only issue here. That's not the only problem here. That's not the only uncontrollable exhibition of the tongue, of its power, uncontrollable power. Also, when we, when we break promises and vows that we've made, this is why it's better just to stay away from those. The Bible wisdom is just don't make them. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you can't do that, don't do anything. But when we break vows and promises, that's a sin. That's a tongue sin. When we boast, that's a, a sin of the tongue. When we lie, that's a sin of the tongue. When we, when we gossip, right? And, and I'll tell you what, some Christians have just become master gossips. They've been able to fly a little bit under the gossip radar by the way they couch the conversation they're aiming to have. Well, I'd like for us to just pray about Sally. Okay, that's how they open it up. And you're thinking, okay, I want to pray for Sally because I like to pray for people. Well, let me tell you what she does. That's just gossip. You're not, you don't care. 
you know, if you cared about Sally, you'd ask for people to pray for Sally, and you wouldn't go into all the detail about what she's doing. And that's one way that Christians mask their gossip. Anytime anyone ever comes to you and says, look, I know I shouldn't say this, say, then don't. Because they're about to gossip. They're about to say something illicit, something wrong. When we do this, we sin with our tongue. It's just as bad as cursing men. When we slander someone, you know, we say things that aren't true about them to malign their character or reputation. And here's a big one. This is one of the biggest ones of all. This is the granddaddy of them all. When we complain. <coughs> Complaining. We have let ourselves get loose with this one. We complain about our health all the time. We complain about our children all the time. We complain about our jobs all the time. We complain about other Christians all the time because their theology isn't reformed enough for me. We complain about this. We complain about that. We're always, always complaining. And the scripture says what? Do all things without complaining. You know what we need to replace our complaints with? Praise. Praise should be on our tongues. It's kind of hard for us to believe, right, that, that actual complaining is, is, is just as lethal and sinful as cursing men. It's just as bad. And some of us have become grand complainers. And then when you question them, they say, well, aren't we supposed to bear each other's burdens? There's a huge difference between sharing a burden and, and asking others to pray with you and bear burdens than to complain to them about the same things over and over and over like a broken record. That's a sin. Every complaint, literally, every complaint, think about this now, I want you to think, every complaint is an assault on God's sovereignty. Every complaint, even about those at some churches that we know really aren't churches that do wackadoodle stuff over there, God is sovereign and has put that there as a means of judgment to the people around. Even complaining about them is an assault on his sovereignty because he's sovereign over that institution over there and using it for his purposes somehow. The, the crummy things that happen in your life, God put them there for your good. And when you complain, you rail against the sovereign Lord who put them there. I, I, I'm real passionate about complaining because as a pastor, it's pretty much all I hear. Incessant complaining. It ought not be. It ought not be. It's just as bad as cursing people who were made in the likeness of God. It's just as bad as gossip. It's just as bad as breaking vows or boasting or lying or any of those things. How about profanity? Using profanity. And you know what, Christians? You don't hear them cussing too much, but they like to play around and dabble with the innuendo. Innuendo is just the same. You say something that causes someone to think of something explicit. You started that sin. It began with you. And some people will say, well, you know what? I use my tongue and I don't use profanity, so I'm in the clear. Well, do you complain? Do you boast? Do you gossip? Profanity, innuendo, coarse joking, all of these things. All of these things. Cursing, cursing men, all of these things. What do they do? They reveal that our 
thoughts, because this is really where it begins, the heart and the mind. Our thoughts, our hearts, and our tongues. When we do this, what? As Christians, it reveals that our hearts, thoughts, and tongues are not under the power and spiritual control of the Holy Spirit. What we say reveals who's at the helm. Makes sense, doesn't it? And so often I speak, and, and you can just tell by what I'm saying, that Phil is in control, and that's why this is happening right now, and this is why it shouldn't be happening. It just reveals that our thoughts and tongues are not under the control and power of the Holy Spirit. This is something that, that we are to be at all times, always under His control. The end of verse 10, James corrects his audience. He just says, and I'm citing this from the NLT because it just puts it right on the money. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right, exclamation point. This behavior, this blessing God and cursing men. It's not right, he says. This is a rebuke. Now we can move to the last section, 11 and 12. He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? He says, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Here James just, what's he doing? He does what he does so well. He's just using logic. He's using logic to drive home the correction in the previous verse, right? Where he says it should not be this way. This is not right. These brothers and sisters in this church, they needed to repent, change the way they speak, especially the men who wanted to become teachers of God's Word. The speech they were using was worldly. It, it, was, it was hellish. It was inconsistent with what? Born-again behavior. It was contradictory, like a freshwater spring producing salt water, a, a fig tree producing olives, a, a grapevine producing figs, or a salt pond producing fresh water. These are the examples that James gives. Totally inconsistent with who they were as the people of God and how they should be speaking. Closing. The words we speak reveal something about us, don't they? They reveal what is in our heart, Luke 6.45. As I said earlier, it's from the heart a man speaks. And they also, as I've said, they reveal who is at the helm and in control of our thoughts and tongues. If we bless God and speak what is good and helpful, right? Ephesians 4.29, because that's, that's our target, what is good and helpful. If we speak that way, well, blessing God as well, worshiping God, it reveals that God's love is in our hearts and that the Holy Spirit is at the helm and in control. But if we curse men or do any of the other things I listed, it reveals that we basically have a kind of hatred in our hearts, a kind of poison in our hearts, 
And it reveals that our, our thoughts and tongues are absolutely not controlled by the Spirit, but are actually tethered to and tied to and controlled by hell. All of the things that we've talked about here, especially cursing men, that's hell speech. And it just affirms the truth that the, that the tongue is an entire world of unrighteousness. And if we break vows or boast, lie, gossip, slander, complain, use profanity, innuendo, coarse joking, any of these things, it just reveals that our thoughts and hearts are not under the power and control of the Holy Spirit. What do our, our words reveal about us? What do your words reveal about you? What do they reveal? The sources that James pointed to in verse 12, and listen carefully, the sources James pointed to in verse 12 yield only what they were created to yield. A fresh water spring only yields fresh water. A fig tree only yields figs. A grapevine only yields grapes. A salt pond only yields salt water. In a similar way, every Christian must learn to yield only what he or she has been created to yield. What have we been created to yield? How about the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and pay very close attention to this last fruit, self-control. Do you know what self-control is? It's tongue control. That last fruit, self-control, it will have a direct impact on our tongues. Brothers and sisters, may we repent of our sins and seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit that, so that we will yield only what we were created to yield. And in this context, self-controlled tongues that bless God and speak only what is good and helpful. Amen.